Hello, I'm Jacob Kruger, and this is the Write Your Screenplay Podcast. Last episode, we looked at Ozark in terms of theme and structure and engine. So today, in part two of this podcast, we're going to look at Ozark in a different way. We're going to talk about the challenges of exposition in both screenwriting and in TV writing. And we're going to talk about how to handle exposition in your own writing. Here's what's really interesting. If you watch episodes one through seven of season one of Ozark, you're going to see some of the finest TV writing anywhere. You're going to see, like we talked about last week, tremendous understanding of primary structure, tremendous understanding of secondary structure, a unifying theme, a character on a fabulous journey. You're going to see so much great stuff, and every single episode is so darn exciting. And every single episode feels the same. And then we get to episode eight of season one, and something very strange happens. We watch an episode that just doesn't feel like Ozark. Up until episode eight, Ozark has been running like a ticking clock. We might bounce around a little bit at the very beginning of the first episode, but in general, we're watching Marty and his family's story unfold in real time under constant pressure. In fact, it's part of the engine of Ozark to create that feeling of a frantic pace, both for the audience and for the characters. That feeling that we're always running just behind the deadline, that time is always running out, and that the stakes of running out of time are life and death. But in episode eight, rather than unfolding in real time, by which I mean in linear time, and under the pressure of time, we flash back to a time when that ticking clock did not exist. We flash back to a time when Marty and Wendy first made the decision to become money launderers, when they first met Dell. We drop out of everything that's been unfolding in season one for what should be a perfectly entertaining episode to tell us what we've all been wondering for seven episodes. How the heck did these nice people end up in this big mess? How did a mild-mannered, conservative, careful accountant like Marty end up becoming a money launderer for a murderous drug cartel? But guess what? It doesn't work. In Ozark, this flashback episode doesn't work because it creates an episode that not only lacks the stakes that make us care so much previously, but also because it generates an episode that doesn't feel like the rest of the season. As we discussed in my last podcast, season one of Ozark is all built around this problem of getting rid of the money, this problem of doing the laundry, cleaning the money, cleaning the money, cleaning the money, cleaning the money, and all the obstacles around it. The feeling of Ozark grows out of this problem, this ticking clock. And the ironic choices Marty Bird, a man who saved everything for the future, has to make when his future is taken away from him. And when the secrets that he and his family have been hiding from each other start to actually come to the surface. Like in all good TV series, a blueprint for this engine in each episode is generated in the pilot. Marty Bird in the pilot has to find $8 million in 48 hours. 
He has to do all kinds of crazy stuff. He's super active. The threat is life and death. And it's terrifying and exciting to watch. And at the end of the pilot, he gets charged with doing the exact same thing. Except this time, it's going to be the engine for the whole season. He's now been charged with laundering $8 million in a place that he has never been to before with a very strict deadline and a bunch of stuff he doesn't know about. And the stakes are, again, life and death. And we are tuning in to watch that adrenaline-pumping feeling of impending doom as Marty Bird tries to launder this money in a very dangerous and unwelcoming environment. And we're tuning in to watch Marty and Wendy oddly find their way back to each other and to their children as they start to get real with each other and stop keeping secrets. But what happens in episode eight grows out of a completely different engine. An engine that's built around exposition rather than threat. An engine that is built around a theme about choices rather than a theme about secrets. An engine that looks to the past rather than building to the future. What happens in this episode is that rather than replicating that fantastic engine that they've built, the writers go back to give you more information. There's a great David Mamet quote about this. The language is his, not mine. Um, and it's actually in an all capital uh, letter email that he sent to uh, his writing team on the unit. And it basically goes like this. Any dickhead with a blue suit can be and is taught to say, make it clearer and I want to know more about him. And when you've made it so clear that even this blue-suited penguin is happy, both you and he or she will be out of a job. No matter how many times people, producers, agents, managers, coverage readers, friends, no matter how many times they tell you they'd like to know more about your character's backstory, Putting your focus on that expository information is almost always a mistake. That's because the audience doesn't come to a movie or to a TV show for information or backstory. They don't come for exposition. They don't come for the why, they come for the what. They come for the same reason you're coming. They come for drama. But wait, you might think, sure, episode eight may be full of exposition in the context of the previous episodes, but as a standalone episode, isn't it full of drama? Doesn't it follow a character on an A to Z change from mild-mannered accountant to cartel money launderer? Isn't it full of high stakes and madness and one of the best you're hired scenes ever? I promise not to ruin that for you. Doesn't have a scene that not only surprises the crap out of the audience in this episode, but also sets up for the end of season three. Why doesn't this episode work? And yet you can't watch that episode, or at least I couldn't, without feeling like the episode doesn't work, without feeling like something was lost. And here's why. It doesn't work because as cool as the story might be, it doesn't compare to the stuff that we've already seen in Ozark. It doesn't work because it grows out of the wrong impulse. Not the impulse to drive the story forward for the characters, but rather the impulse to explain how they got there in the first place. And most of all, it doesn't work because in a TV show, the kind of drama that 
the audience is coming for is the same kind of drama you've promised to them in your engine. And episode eight simply provides a different kind of drama. Now that doesn't mean you can't do variations on your engine. If you look at Breaking Bad, for example, there are several seasons where Skylar has absolutely no idea what her husband is doing. In fact, that's a big part of the engine of Breaking Bad, that Walter White will just never tell his wife what's really going on. And quite frankly, after several seasons, not only are you tired of it, the writers are tired of it too. We're just tired of watching Walter White not tell his wife. And so the engine changes. Walter tells his wife. But remember, if he tells his wife, and that leads to marital bliss, you've killed the engine. Because the real engine is the disconnection between Walter and Skylar. So what happens instead? She has to start to break bad. There has to become a new tension between the two of them. They have to be pulled back apart because that's the engine. So in the same way, what happens here in Ozark episode 8 is that we lose the formula that's been so successful. And it's important to understand that these are great frickin' writers. It's important to understand that in Ozark, we actually end up forgiving them because by episode 9, we are right back on track again getting what we, what we were promised. But episode 8, nevertheless, is a bump in the road. And let's talk about why. The reason it's a bump in the road is because it's like showing up at a Burger King and suddenly they're selling fabulous filet mignon. Or showing up at a Ruth Chris Steakhouse and suddenly they're serving processed hamburgers. It's not that these things are wrong. It's that they don't feel right. It's that they're not what you came for, not what you were promised. So let's talk about why this is so important. Ozark, fortunately, waited all the way until episode 8 to make the mistake of confusing structure with exposition. And because of that, the the series survives it. You're still going to come back for episode 9 because you know how good episodes 1 through 7 were. But many new writers make this mistake at a much more dangerous time. Many new writers make this mistake in their pilot. If you use your pilot to set up the future, establish the backstory, or explain how your characters got here, there's only one thing that you know for certain. Nobody's ever going to watch episode two. Because you don't have their buy-in yet. You don't have their love yet. You don't have their connection to your characters yet. So remember, the audience isn't coming to find out why. The audience is coming to experience what. The audience isn't coming to understand. The audience is coming to wonder, to put those pieces together for themselves. And the job of the pilot is to hurdle your characters and your audience into your very best material, not to establish how we're going to get there, to already be there right away, which means your job as a writer is really simple. Don't save the best for last Save the best for first. Let me explain how that works. Let's say you have the idea to write a wonderful series called Ozark. You might think, okay, I've got an engine that's about a dude who's the most straight and narrow accountant in the world who becomes a money launderer for the cartel. So, of course, my pilot is going to be about how he became a money launderer. 
But guess what? That's exactly how every other writer who's got an idea like this is going to start their pilot. It's the obvious choice, but it's not the most fun choice. You see, we've already seen Breaking Bad, which has a similar structure. So while there's nothing wrong with having a show in the same genre, it can't unfold in the same way. It's got to start in a way that outdoes our existing expectations. And often finding that way just means taking the cool stuff you've been saving up for later and instead making it happen right now in your pilot. And this is exactly what the pilot of Ozark does. Rather than starting with the why or the backstory, the Ozark pilot starts in a much more interesting place, right in the middle of the action that most writers might save for a later episode. It starts with a bunch of secrets up the writer's sleeves that we don't even know about, and a huge problem that's going to take Marty a whole season to solve. One of the biggest mistakes I see in series pilots is that the writers start too slow. They start with the backstory, they start with the exposition, as opposed to starting with the story, as opposed to starting with the drama. And this happens to a lot of writers who write character bios as well. So I want to take a moment to talk about character bios because this is one of those tools that people get really confused about um, because character bios almost always don't lead to characters. Character bios almost always lead to exposition. I'm so cautious about character bios because the more time you invest in them, the more likely you are to make the mistake of thinking that your character bio is actually the story. And usually your character bio makes a lot of sense, but here's the thing about people. People don't make sense, right? People are complicated. The most conservative guy in the world also happens to be laundering money, and he's holding both parts of himself at the same time. That's what a character is. So when you think about your characters, or when you think about your pilot, or when you think about the first act of your movie or your play, you want to think, what's the hottest thing I could come in with? For TV writers, here's what I recommend. After you write your pilot, write episode two. And about half the time, what you will learn is that episode two is actually the pilot. And the pilot is actually the boring backstory. For feature film writers, I usually recommend that after you write the first 10 pages, think about what would happen if you just threw those first 10 pages out and just started at what you're considering to be your inciting incident. What would happen if you started right in the middle of everything? And for writers who are asking yourselves, but what about establishing this or that? Or, but don't we need to know this? Don't we need to explain that? Don't we have to set this up? Don't I have to lay that in? Don't I have to explain that? Aren't people going to want to know more about that? Well, let me set you at ease. If you're worried about exposition or if you're getting buried in exposition, then I want you to just watch episodes one through seven of Ozark. And then I want you to watch episode eight. And I want you to notice how little of that exposition we actually needed. In fact, you could cut episode 8 out of the season, go directly from 7 to 9, and have a season that worked perfectly. I want you to notice that, in fact, you intuited, you imagined, as you put together the pieces of Ozark in your own mind in episodes 1 to 7. 
you likely told yourselves a more interesting story than the ones that the writers told you in episode eight. And this is almost always true. The audience will almost always tell themselves an interesting story. They will figure out the backstory for themselves if you throw them into a really powerful story in the present. And if you're still concerned about the stuff the audience really needs to know in order for future episodes to work, then I challenge you to watch all of Ozark seasons one to three and then re-watch episode eight. And you'll realize, in fact, that there is actually only one expository moment in episode eight that matters. There's actually only one moment in episode eight that plays a vital role in the series because it sets up the end of season three. And here's that moment. So if you haven't watched all of Ozark, you might want to turn down your volume for the next 30 seconds. And then we'll be back to stuff that won't spoil it for you. There is that one moment in episode eight when Marty Bird shows up for a meeting with the cartel. And Dell gruesomely murders the person who's currently laundering money for him. Right in front of Marty before offering Marty the job. And at that moment, we may think, well, so much for job security. But more seriously, we and Marty both realize exactly what the stakes are of his new position. But what we don't realize at that moment is that the writers are actually holding yet another secret from us. That they're actually setting up their awesome surprise ending that's going to shock the hell out of us at the end of season three. And that I am not going to spoil for you. You're going to have to watch that for yourselves. But the lesson is important. Rather than thinking about all the many things it would be nice for the audience to know, instead I want you to ask yourself, is there any one thing they really need to know? And then, rather than wasting a pilot or an Ozark's case an episode on backstory and exposition, you can get creative about how to sneak that one idea in, that one moment in, right in the middle of the drama. So I want you to watch Ozark episode eight because I want you to see what happens when you start too slow. I want you to see what happens when you start to think the backstory is the story because I want you to see what happens when you start to think, I'd like to know more about that. When you start to think, I'd like to know more about that is actually an important note. And I want you to remember that exposition is actually something that happens along the way in your story. It used to be back in the days when Sid Field wrote screenplay that you used to see movies where the first 30 minutes was set up. Um, but in today's market, if your first 30 pages is set up, if your first 10 pages is set up, even if your first page is set up, your show, your movie, your play, your screenplay, your book is not going to go anywhere because no one's going to read the later pages. This industry has become so competitive that unless you have a super powerful agent, you're not going to get anybody to read that script that sets everything up. And more importantly, if you're working in television, people are watching the first couple of minutes and deciding whether they're going to watch your series or not. 
So if you're spending your first moments setting things up, rather than dropping us into the action, what's going to happen is you're going to lose your audience. In fact, this is a very important thing for any of you who are entering festivals. If you're not consistently getting to the second round of festivals, if they don't ever take any one festival seriously, or any one contest seriously, uh, you, you can't take any one thing seriously because remember, you're getting read by interns. You're getting read by brand new writers who are writing coverage, right? You're not getting read by giants in the industry or experienced people yet um, because no one can afford to do that. Um, so you're getting read by, by little babies, but that's okay. Um, because if you're not getting to the next round consistently, the problem isn't on page 80. It's not on page 50. It's not even on page 30. The problem is in your first 10 pages. If you submit to 10 contests and you don't get to the second round in half of them, you have a problem in your first 10 pages. Why? Because most contests cannot afford to actually read the full script of every script that's submitted. They can't afford to do it. And most coverage readers don't want to waste their time on a crappy script, even if they're getting paid to do it. They're going to read the first 10 and then they're going to skim from there if they're not connected if it doesn't seem like it's, it's gonna work. Just like you, if you watch the first three minutes of a show and you're bored, you're gonna go, ah, I'll check out a different show. So, and by the way, this is even true, never trust written notes. This is even true when you see a covered reader. On page 44, um, just because they're citing pages doesn't mean they didn't skim. Um, often they'll, they'll flip back through and cite those specific line numbers to show you that they've read. Um, but people are people and coverage readers are getting paid somewhere between zero and 50 bucks a script. So there is absolutely no chance that they could possibly read every script carefully. So if you are not getting to the second round consistently, then you got to look at your first 10 pages. And the first question you should ask yourself in those first 10 pages is, am I setting stuff up? Or am I launching into the action? Am I assuming there's all this stuff the audience needs to know? Or am I trusting the audience to go on a ride and discover things with me? Am I setting up a clear idea? Or am I tracking a character on the journey of a lifetime? That's the first thing you want to ask yourself. And if, if none of those things are true, then there are other questions. You can start to ask craft questions and structure questions. But that's the first question you want to ask. And the easiest way to know is just to think about who am I thinking about? Am I thinking about the audience? Or am I thinking about the character? Because a weird thing happens when we think about the audience. Is we start to use way too much exposition. We start to assume that our audience must be so dumb. And why? Because as writers, every single one of us is afraid of being misunderstood. 
Every single one of us is afraid of not being clear. And every single one of us is afraid of not being good enough. It's a natural feeling that all artists have. So what ends up happening is when we think about the audience, I like to say we become that, if you've ever been on a date with someone you think is a lot hotter than you are, you start to become that person, you know, the weird dude with the arms, right? You doesn't know where to put them, who's suddenly saying all kinds of weird things that you would never actually say and trying to be impressive in ways that are not impressive at all, that are just awkward. Well, guess what? That's just you thinking about the audience rather than just being on a ride with the character. And this is, to get a little spiritual, this is a spiritual part of writing. The spiritual part of writing is actually being present with your character. Actually jumping in, not to the shallow end of the water, but to the deep end. Actually saying, you know what? Forget about exposition. Forget about what the audience needs. Forget about setting things up. Let me just jump into whatever I think is the most interesting part of this show, this pilot, this series, this feature, this comedy, this drama, whatever is the most exciting thing. You want to start there. You want to ask yourself, what if the audience didn't need to know anything? And then just like I just did with episode eight, once you've built the structure, once you really see what the piece wants to be, then what you want to do is say, is there any of that exposition that I thought was necessary that's still really, really necessary? What's the one thing that they absolutely must know? And then you can start to get creative about how to lay that in. If you're enjoying this podcast, I'd like to invite you to our newest free event. Every Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific, we have a fabulous event called Quarantinis. And it's going to go on for free for as long as this crazy COVID thing continues. So here's how it works. Um, you can go to my website, writeyourscreenplay.com slash quarantinis. You can pour yourself an alcoholic or non-alcoholic drink. Um, and and you will get to listen to an interview with one of our incredible teachers each week. Um, we will talk about a, a screenwriting, TV writing, even comic book writing topic. Um, we will get really deep into understanding how that works. And then that will lead to a writing exercise and a place where you can share your work with the community. It's a wonderful free event, and I hope you can join. Um, so again, writeyourscreenplay.com slash quarantinis to RSVP. Um, you can make a donation or you can donate your time and a smile. That's fine as well. Um, and as long as this crisis continues, we're also offering, for those of you who are interested in our classes, we know that a lot of you are suffering. So um, we're continuing our scholarship program. So if you are hoping to continue with your writing for every regularly priced um, 
uh, class that we sell, we are for every regularly priced class that we sell, we're giving away two 50% scholarships. Uh, you can claim them right on our website. It's, a, it's an honor code thing. If you need it, please take it. If you're thinking about ProTrack or a workshop but are afraid about affording it, um, we're, we're matching all the money that gets donated for our Quarantinis event and we're using that to subsidize the cost of ProTrack and workshops for our affected population. So if you want to be part of it, you don't have to worry about money. You can reach out to us, uh, visit our website, reach out to info at writeyourscreenplay.com and we will be happy to help you out.